And I'll be reading from the sixth chapter and verses one through six. I'm going to add verse seven because it gives some necessary context. And then in the New Testament, the writer of the Hebrews gives a very encouraging word that I think goes along with this, this passage. It's from Exodus 12, 1 and 2. And would you stand for the reading of God's word? Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. This is the inerrant and the infallible word of the living God. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they live as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm when with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. In the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord will endure forever. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Believe it or not, philosophy 
every now and then can be practical. There is a philosophical idea called determinism that has become very practical. And, in my estimation, sometimes very harmful. It's practical in the sense that it is used all the time. Uh, determinism or uniformitarianism is a philosophy that says, as things have been, they always will be. And determinism, for instance, has made its way into the behavioral sciences. Determinism has made its way into uh, the, the hard sciences as well. Uh, uh, Darwinism and social Darwinism is, is an example of determinism. You are, your genes are programmed in such a way as you are determined, predetermined to do and to act this way. It's, it's no surprise that you married the person that you married. It, it's no surprise that you fell into the trouble that you did. We can determine all of these things. Determinism as a philosophy ha has sort of leaked into uh, the hard sciences and particularly into behavioral sciences. And it can be quite helpful in many ways, but in other ways it can lead to prejudice, it can stifle creativity. Uh, it can lead to self-doubt. The problem, the problem with determinism uh, in the Bible is, is the gospel. It's what Martin Lloyd-Jones, the Welsh preacher called the romance of the gospel. Now the romance of the gospel is that anyone, anytime, anywhere can change because of what Martin Luther called an alien righteousness which enters a person and gives that person a, a new life or what Jesus called being Born again, which has taken on its own extra-biblical social uh, meaning in our society. But being born again literally is a violent disruption of determinism. It is what causes someone like Karl Barth uh, who has been the subject of much debate uh, within evangelical circles, uh, a Swiss theologian in the mid-19th century, to talk about how the gospel is a gospel of what he called nevertheless, in his commentary on Philippians, for instance. And, and it goes like this. The syllogism of humankind is, in fact, a determinism. If a... Therefore, B, thus C. So you would, you would put it like this. If, for instance, my grandfather was a thief, then my 
father was a drunk, therefore, I'm probably going to be an adulterer. This is just the way human life is. A, B, C. It's the syllogism of man. If A, then B, therefore C. And in this Swiss theologian's idea of the gospel, he shows it interjecting and exploding the syllogisms of man so that instead of the gospel or instead of a philosophy of therefore, he gives us what we understand is a gospel of nevertheless. Yes, my grandfather was a thief, and yes, my father was a drunk. Nevertheless, because of Jesus Christ, I am a new person. I am not held hostage to the deterministic forces of this world or to biology or to any other force in this world because of an alien force. The God of all creation through Christ has come into my life. And he set me free. And we know this is the core, the heart of the gospel. And it's the gospel message that we preach to the world. And it obliterates all of the human syllogisms of this world which trap you into believing you must be this way and and things must be this way. My tomorrow is going to be this way because my yesterday was this way. The gospel obliterates that. The gospel is a gospel of nevertheless. Israel is an example. And the Exodus is an example of how the gospel of nevertheless entered into time and space and obliterated the therefore syllogisms of mankind. It would seem that they were in bondage before. They were, they were in bondage yesterday. They woke up in bondage today. They would be in bondage tomorrow. But nevertheless, God comes into the picture with a plan of salvation. A plan of salvation for them which was going to bring them out from underneath the burden of the Pharaoh, the oppressiveness of uh, slavery in Egypt, and bring them into a land that had been promised to the patriarchs and give that land to them. And within this, this plan of salvation, which is set in Exodus 6, 1 through 6, we have before us the very plan of salvation that continues, is built upon, is expanded, is filled in throughout the Bible and comes to you this morning. It is the gospel plan, the plan of salvation that is as powerful today to interrupt the deterministic forces in your life as it was when it liberated Israel, the children of Israel, from the slavery of Egypt. It's as powerful to do that today with the bondage of addiction and the bondage of toxic relationships, the bondage of depression, the bondage of hatred, the bondage of prejudice, the bondage of sin in all of its hideous 
manifestations all the way down to the very root of sin, which is the very fallen nature you were born with, and it begins to destroy it, and it begins to transform you from the inside out. And all of that right here in Exodus 6, 1 through 6. What does that plan of salvation look like? The plan of salvation, which, which grows throughout the Bible and is filled in and is expanded, has four simple parts that we could follow and we could trace throughout all of redemptive history. And we could see those in this passage. And the first part is this. God's plan of salvation always begins with his gracious covenant. His promise. He says to Moses, he says, you're to tell them, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now he has a rather enigmatic statement here. He says, I appeared to them by uh, the name El Shaddai, I've come to you by, by the name uh, Yahweh, the covenant name. And uh, there's much that could be said about that, but essentially he's revealed himself in a personal way to Moses. When Moses said, who shall I say that sent me? He said, I am. And so I came to you in this unique way, is what he's saying here. But he said, I have established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan. The plan of salvation that is going to liberate Israel out of oppression and into a promised land is a plan of salvation that was first in the heart of God before time, as we knew it, ever ticked off the first second. Before the... Earth was ever before time could be because there was no earth relative to another object in the universe. It was in the, the heart of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that in that deep, mysterious providence of God, in the panoramic vision he had for his own creation, he says, I will make a covenant that I will do for my own creation what they could not do for themselves, and in that I will be glorified, and in that love will be established and fellowship will be established. Yes, there's a lot of what's and why's in that, and we're not given all of those answers. The curtain is pulled back only enough for us to see that God says, I have made a covenant. And that covenant is the scarlet thread that not only binds together all 66 books of the Bible, but it binds together all of the other parts of redemption. It binds together all of your salvation and mine. It binds all of us together, uh, tribe and tongue and nation throughout all the world and throughout all history. It is a scarlet thread because the thread has been stained red by the very blood of the mediator of the covenant, the one who actuated the promise, and that is God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on Calvary's cross.
That's the first part. And so the first part of the plan of salvation begins with, with God moving to you. Not, not you moving to God. And that has enormous pastoral and practical implications. It means that if you are in trouble today, God has moved to you. He moved to you before the foundation of the world. I had a predecessor at First Presbyterian Church in Chattanooga, and his name was Dr. James Fowle. I didn't meet him because he died uh, before I came there. Uh, he ministered back in the 40s and the 50s, late 30s, 40s, 50s. But I've listened to some of his preaching and I read some of his manuscripts. He, he was once asked, he said, he, he was asked by a Christian on the street, Dr. Fowle, I want to know your testimony. When were you saved? Dr. Fowle was from Washington, North Carolina. Uh, he grew up in a Christian home and in the Presbyterian Church there in Washington, North Carolina. And uh, his answer was priceless. He said, uh, I was saved in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. And I was saved when God sent his only begotten son to die on a cross for my sins. And I was saved when God sent my mother and father to teach me the gospel and I heard it reinforced at the little Presbyterian church in Washington, North Carolina. And, and I was saved when I felt the gospel sting in my heart, the Holy Spirit awakening me as a young lad to recognize my sin and my need of Christ. And I am being saved each time I preach the gospel and recognize my need of God. And I shall be saved when I leave this world. And I shall be saved in a new heaven and a new earth. And this body itself is resurrected. And he said, the, the fellow responded, well, Dr. Fowler, I was just asking. <laughs> but he's right. It's a panoramic vision that begins with the loving heart of God. Now, this is very much related to the second part of God's plan of salvation that we see here. He says... I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. Part of the plan of salvation is not, is not, is not an activity, but it is, it is a nature it is not only the gracious covenant of God, it is the great gracious attitude or nature of God. See, it is the nature of God to save. It is not the nature of God to leave you alone. It is not the nature of God to, to, to shun you. It is not the nature of God to, to 
willingly afflict you. The Bible says, does it not, that God does not willingly afflict the children of men. And yet we suffer, and there's the question of theodicy. Why does a, why does a good God allow uh, people to, to suffer? There's all the question. But we know this. God is sovereign. He doesn't allow, he doesn't willingly allow his children to suffer. He will allow us to go through some times of difficulty. He doesn't put us to the test, yet we go through trials and we have to put all those variables together and in that we come out, those mysterious variables as they're placed together, we just come out with, with this nature of this loving God who's essentially gracious. Now this is a difference between the God revealed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and revealed to you, then the God who comes, the, God that, the gods that I taught, for instance, to a campus outreach uh, uh, group this past December, as I taught about other religions, the essential differences between the God of the Bible and his nature, as he is perceived, as he reveals himself. He is by nature a redeemer. He is by nature gracious. The third part of this is that he says he will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Now this is very important. Not only does God, God's plan of salvation include a, a gracious covenant and, and a gracious attitude, but it includes an everlasting memorial. Now, in this case, the plagues that will follow will be signs and wonders of God's activity among them that they're about to be released. And the last great sign that will be given before they move out into the, the wilderness will, of course, be the Passover, a sign which will be commemorated until the end of time. And we know that the Lord Jesus placed himself in the Passover as the Lamb of God and that we continue that, you continue that in this congregation as you celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, Holy Communion, known in several ways, but it is essentially the New Testament Passover. And it is to memorialize what God has done. Now here's something I want you to see. God memorializes your salvation. And some of you have got memorials to your salvation with your testimonies. Your, your testimony, what God did in your life is, is a memorial. Memorials are given so that we can look back and in some way enter into them again emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, and our lives can become recalibrated and we can, 
we can reset ourselves as disciples in following God. That's what communion is. When we come to the table, we are recalibrating our lives on Christ and his death for our sins. His act is equivalent to the act of the blood on the doorpost which caused the angel of death to pass over and allow Israel then to begin to flee and be saved. It's to memorialize our salvation. And baptism memorializes then our entrance, our gracious welcoming and entrance, our, the washing away of sins and the, the entrance, the inauguration of the journey of the Christian life. But you know what is not memorialized in your life? Your fall. Your sin. And yet, sometimes we spend as much or more time looking back, sort of recalibrating our lives on our failures, instead of on the memorial signs of our salvation. Well, there's only one memorial in the Bible that is set up and erected for your sin. And that is the cross. It is a memorial of sin. Your sin and mine placed on Jesus Christ so that in that great transfer we get his life as he got our death and our hell. We need to receive that this morning so that we can leave here free people and go on an exodus for the rest of our Christian lives as free people. And when we look back, look back to the cross as the place is that place where our sins are deposited and look back to our baptism and communion our testimonies as those places which strengthen us for the journey, the journey to come. And then finally, he, he gives a, a dwelling place and a destination. That's the, the fourth part of the plan of salvation. The plan of salvation doesn't simply rest with you being saved. The last part is always a destination. The, the destination here was a physical piece of ground. That piece of ground had been promised to the patriarchs for a specific purpose. That piece of ground was going to be taken and established in order for Israel to become a nation of people. And we now know in the fullness of redemptive history that from that nation of people would come forth a Messiah. And it's Isaiah who would say it's too small a thing that this would be only for the household of Jacob. No, this is for the far and distant isles 
of the world, Isaiah will say. They were after a piece of ground. But just as Mike so wonderfully showed us in his illustration about setup teams, you're not just setting up chairs, you're building a cathedral. So they were not just getting a piece of ground, they were establishing a possession that would bring about a new heaven and a new earth. Because the destination that we seek today is not a piece of ground. It is a city that is made without hands. It is a city that, whose foundations are of God. It is a destination that not only includes passing from this life into the presence of Almighty God when we die. For to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It is even greater than that. It is moving forward to a destination where, where the Apostle Paul says there's coming a day when even Jesus Christ will hand over the kingdom to the Father that God may be all in all. That is the great covenantal plan of redemption from eternal past to eternal to eternity future is going to be consummated and complete. We're headed for a great and a glorious future. Body and soul and earth and universe. But Israel wasn't ready for the plan of salvation. And it wasn't because they were bad people. The Bible says they weren't ready to hear all of these points of the plan of salvation because they had a broken spirit and because, because of the harsh slavery. They were tired. Some of you are tired. It's hard for some of you to grasp and to think about a new heaven and a new earth when right now you're trying to figure out how to pay the electric bill this coming week. Or why the, the Lord has allowed the cells in your body to begin to multiply. The way they're doing And so the apostle, that is the writer, to the Hebrews, then reminds us, Therefore, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and he's just gone through talking about these who have followed the Lord in trials and difficulties, unimaginable trials. These become clouds of witnesses, as much as even some of your fathers and mothers who are now in heaven, your grandfathers and mothers, your friends, husbands, wives, ch children, faithful witnesses who ran the race, who help us to keep our heads up and to see God's covenant will keep us whole. God's attitude is always toward redemption. 
He's given us memorials to remind us. And we're not standing still, we're on our way. Let me explain it with a once upon a time type story. Do you remember this old house or do you still watch it, the home improvement show? Well, what if there was a, a this old house? But this old house was a place of horror to you. Maybe it's a, it was a place where you lived in your life as a child. And maybe that was a place of, of hardship, maybe desperate poverty. But maybe it was more than that. Maybe it was a place of, of violent acts, maybe between your parents or perpetrated against you. Maybe it was a place of abuse. Or, or maybe that, that house is, is a place, a life that you were lured into earlier in your life. It's a past life that you want to forget, but it, but it seems to stay with you, that, that old house. And it's hard to leave it even though you hate it. It's broken you so much, it's hard for you to step outside of the old house. But then someone comes to you kindly and extends his hand to you. And there's such a graciousness and love that you've never known that you you respond with your own hand extended. And you walk out of the old house of pain. And somehow you, you hear him saying, follow me. And you begin to walk away from the house. And as you do, you turn and you see that the house itself explodes in a cataclysmic fire. And as the old house is burning, you, you see, as it were, uh, spirit-like images shooting up into the sky, their hands in chains, manacles, their feet bound, screaming as if they can do no more harm. And you see the house itself beginning to collapse. And you hear a cry. It is finished. And you wonder. But you are continued to be led. And you're led through a meadow. And the meadow is, is in some places very beautiful. And in other places it's very hard. There are nettles and thistles and thorny bushes. You meet other people and some of them are very encouraging to you and you, you pause for a while and you, you're refreshed by them. But the hand continues to lead you. 
and you come to see that there are others in the meadow and they seem to be going as well, but in your part of the meadow, you've now come to the end of the meadow. There's a serene brook gurgling in front of you, but much too wide to cross. And you say, now how, how will I get over this? And you hear a voice, familiar, say, follow me. I've come to prepare a place for you. And the voice is familiar. You heard the voice at the burning house. It is finished. As the burning house collapsed on him. And you begin to walk, not knowing how you will get across. But then you are. And you're in a new land, a new place. And there the fog is lifted. And the only thing left are the tears in your eyes as you still wanted to look back at that old house and the first thing that awaits you is that one wiping the tears from your eyes and welcoming you to a destination you always knew you were headed toward but you could never imagine. Why do I tell you that story? Because sometimes it takes imaginary stories and once upon a time tales for those of us who are little children to grasp the truth. And the truth is Christ is saving us from the burning buildings of our own sins. That's why he died. And he's leading us now to a new home. And the people along the way that we meet are people here who encourage us. Yeah, sometimes they even hurt us and we hurt them. But that's still because we're on this side of the brook and things are cloudy. And here, and around us. But God's plan of salvation is in force. And the hand that is leading you is Christ himself through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he comes to you this morning and he says it's time to go. It's time to follow. It's time to leave the shame and the pain and to come and follow me for the first time or to follow me again. Let us pray.